Welcome to Seeing Red the Pod, episode 53, where we always discuss the latest Nebraska issues. I'm Stephanie, and here with me today are April and Amanda. Hi, ladies. How's it going? Hi. Hello. Welcome, Amanda. We're so excited to have you tonight. Glad to be here. We're in the presence of Seeing Red royalty. (laughs) (laughs) I'll take it where I can get it. What'd you do this weekend? I have been working all weekend trying to write a paper not related to Nebraska politics, but oh. you know, about Emily Dickinson actually. So were you productive? Fine. I was pretty darn productive this weekend. Yeah. Wonderful. Pretty good. <laughs> April, what did you do this weekend? I did a lot of yard work, got the whole family involved. And mm. then um, I got to see all uh, like, a couple groups of vaccinated friends in person friends are my favorite they're my favorite too isn't it uh refreshing to be able to see people that you like and not have to worry about if you're risking their lives or you're risking Uh, theirs there was a early in the pandemic there was a meme and i told these friends i'm totally doing this it was like as soon as this thing is over i'm french kissing all of my friends for two minutes straight (laughs) And I was like, get ready. (laughs) I'm glad that we were quarantine buddies. (laughs) (laughs) April's going to be like my dog with an empty jar of peanut butter. Just (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's something I've never heard before, but... Uh, what'd you do Stephanie I'm getting ready my uh, college age daughter is coming back and I haven't seen her in 267 days not that I'm (gasps) counting but um, I'm pretty excited so I'm trying to do all the things so that when she's here I can just stare at her you know Um, (laughs) so I'm very much looking forward to that I also bought a whole bunch of plants I'm like I'm going to go to this garden store and just buy a couple of plants for my friend. But then I found like 15 plants I apparently desperately needed. So, (laughs) you know, it's a problem. I know you both garden. I don't garden. I just don't. I I forget about them. And the only sunny spot is like behind the fence in a weird place. So then it's out of sight, out of mind, and it all just dies. Yeah. Once you get the bug, um, you'll be converted. So I keep, I keep tilling up new vegetable patches in our yard and the space of our actual lawn keeps shrinking. Uh, I think that's fantastic. I don't think people should have lawns. So yeah, I agree. It's just hard to get rid of it without turning your, you know, entire yard into a weed farm. So I'd like to call those natural grasses. (laughs) That's right. Mine is a weed farm, but I do like having the space because our children, like, we run around in it and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah. I've planted some trees, some hosts. Well, the trees were the last couple of years, some hostas. And we beautiful did irises. I do have lots of irises. Apparently, I need to dig them up in July and move them around because they're not all blooming anymore. I don't know. Well, so uh, let's talk. We have Amanda on tonight because... She's been doing some citizen journalism, <laughs> investigating a, and I truly mean investigating, um, a dangerous tire pile uh, in Alvo, Nebraska. Um, it's a huge pile. You can see it in 
in satellite images. It's illegal. Um, it's grown over the past few years. It's just 10 miles outside of Lincoln. Um, and it's a real failure because the, the government of this small village is, is uh, what's the word? Failing? <laughs> Amanda, yeah, that's tell how, us. That's how I would describe it. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure how, <laughs> I'm not sure how much the, the board of trustees at Alpha would agree with that description. <laughs> Yeah, so we received an anonymous tip about problems in Alvo, Nebraska, which I, I had heard of before, but I wasn't quite aware of how close it is to Lincoln. I think if you were measuring just as the crow flies from the northeast edge of Lincoln to Alvo, it's about 10 miles. But it, you know, takes, you know, a little longer than that to actually drive out there. Uh, and Alvo is five or six miles north of Eagle, which is another small town, but it's considerably larger than Alvo is, which has about 130 something people in it right now. And um, <clears throat> I'm pretty sure I had more people than that at my wedding. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a small town. And my impression of Alvo um, is that there are some, some people who have lived there for a very long time, you know, decades or, or, or their entire lives. And then there are some younger people out there who, who are maybe newer, judging from what I've heard at the board meeting recording and, and, and that kind of thing. I, you know, I think Alvo probably has some appeal to people living in Lincoln who are looking for affordable housing because, you know, you go out to a little village 10 miles outside of Lincoln and it is a, a manageable commute and you can buy, you could get a lot more house and, and yard for your money if you live out in a little village like that. Of course, you're giving up some things because Alvo does not have any longer its own fire department. It does not have its own rescue service, you know, ambulance service, and it doesn't have its own school. So you'd have to send your kids off to another school. Um, and I, I had never given it much thought before, but I thought it would be a little disconcerting, I think, to have anyone in your family with health problems and and be pretty far away from, say, an ambulance response, you know. So there are obviously yeah. trade-offs. But so we, we had um, heard about some various shenanigans happening out in Alvo. And, um, you know, we get a lot of tips at seeing red and sometimes it's not clear what's really going on or it's maybe <laughs> somebody with a bone to pick or something, you know, trying to get us involved in a, in a dispute. But for me, the thing that, that really trained my focus onto this problem was when I just Google mapped Alvo zoomed in on the satellite view and thought, what is that giant black blotch on the North side of town? Like what the heck is that? And I zoomed in and I saw it was tires. Um, it was just this sea of tires that our tipster had mentioned. Um, and I thought that was really, that perked my ears up. And so I started just- And why? What do you know about tires that make well, you like be interested? <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, I know a lot more about them now. <laughs> <laughs> but what, you had to know a little something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, tires are really gross. And we're all guilty. There, there's no, um, <laughs> there is no, you know, Whole Foods, heirloom, um, 
quinoa, I bike to work, alternative to tires, right? I mean, if you bike to work, what's your bike tire made out of? Who ships your produce in to your local co-op, right? Like we're all reliant on these horrible um, synthetic fossil fuel laden hazards that, Mm -hmm. you know, are are on every vehicle in the country. And, um, you know, basically from the very beginning of the manufacturing process with tires, these things are terrible. A, A large part of any given tire is synthetic, but some part of a lot of tires is made out of natural rubber. So one of the things that perked my ears up about this story to begin with was that I had done some reading a couple years ago about the labor conditions in Liberia, um, which is just a large part of, of that country is just a giant um, rubber tree farm for um, making corporate uh, profits for American tire companies. And they are essentially running that country like a company store type situation, you know, where the, um, the people who work on the rubber plantations work in grueling exploitative conditions. They live in housing provided by the companies. Their children work for the companies. They try to grow their own food on land, but the company owns the land they're growing their food on. And if they're evicted, they lose access to their food. It's, it's a really terrible situation for just the natural sourcing of, of rubber that goes into tires. But that's not even the half of it because then it joins in with all of these synthetic um, carcinogenic materials. There's a lot of heavy metal type stuff that goes into tire making and um, a whole lot of oil uh, gets impregnated into tires. It's something like about um, five gallons of oil is in any given passenger tire. So what happens when your tire treads wear out, right? Um, And we produce as a country about one waste tire per person per year. That's mind boggling, right? So we're just generating this, this toxic waste, you know, hundreds of millions of them a year. And there's just not really a great answer for what you do with, with waste tires or scrap tires um, as they're called. So you can, um, several years ago, there was a lot of publicity about these kind of recycling efforts. Like I'm sure you guys have taken your kids to playgrounds where they either have like a um, pulverized uh, rubber mulch down, mm-hmm. or they sometimes have more of like a, a kind of flexible or soft yeah. asphalt type thing, you know? Mm-hmm. So they can like, they could try to work recycled crumb tires, what it's called when it gets kind of pulverized down, they'll try to work that, that material into those kinds of products. But what they have found is just that the, when they turn them into those kind of flat bed coverings, they wear out really fast and then they're right back, you know, where you started having to find a way of disposing of them. And um, especially with that kind of crumb tire mulchy type stuff, but even when it's in the larger sheets, all of the nasty ingredients in those tires just get, you know, on this slow drip leaching into whatever community space you've put these things in. So um, you're just putting on a, 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 a low drip of these carcinogenic fossil fuel based um, nasty chemicals in your kid's playground or in your you know, community area. So that's, that's, you know, there's, there's, the tires are here to stay as a problem once they've been produced. And really the best thing it looks like that you can do with them 
is uh, chop them up into tiny pieces and get them as quickly as possible buried deep into a landfill where they are contained in one spot along with a whole bunch of other nasty stuff and they're not just kind of spread out. Hmm. And so what really is the absolute worst thing that you can do with tires is pile them up in one spot. And um, I remember even as a kid being taught that you have to dispose of tires because they collect water, right? And they become these mosquito breeding grounds. Mm -hmm. What one resident of Alvo told me was that they could not believe the mosquitoes that were in town um, over the last couple of summers, right? Like where are these mosquitoes coming from? There's mm. not a like, clear water source nearby. Well, I think it's obvious where they're coming from now. So they become, they become a breeding ground for mosquitoes and also in some places rats and, you know, other problems like that. But the main, um, the main environmental problem is that they are very prone to fires and tire fires Yikes. are horrible. Yeah. The, biggest fire in U.S. history was a fire tire, a, f- <laughs> a tire fire. <laughs> the biggest I didn't fire, even catch it. I, I cannot say, um, tire, fire. tire, tire, pile, fire. <laughs> I, I will say those words in any possible order. Um, <laughs> tire, pile, fire. They sound like exactly the same three words to me, but the worst tire in U.S. history was in the 1980s, and um, it was when 7 million tires burned in Virginia, and it created a toxic smoke plume that stretched 50 miles. It polluted air and water in three states, and it took, um, I believe, nine months to put completely wow. out. Wow. So the problem so- is once these tires start burning they are not easy fires to solve. They are not responsive to normal firefighting methods. So they're, you know, it's all of this fossil fuel just embedded in, in, into this rubber product and they burn really hot. They're hard often to access to even get into like the center of these giant piles that can still be smoldering. And sometimes with tire fires, people have thought that, um, there had been one previously that was never actually put out that was just still kind of smoldering from within and then broke out again. And they produce a whole lot of nasty shit. There's toxic carcinogenic smoke pouring out of these things. The, even though they're not um, easily put out with water, fighting them involves a lot of water because you're trying to contain them, keep them from spreading, keep the temperature down, you know, and there is usually a whole lot of toxic runoff produced by the water that people have to pour on these fires. And so over the last couple decades, states have begun passing a whole lot of regulations to try to prevent these kinds of fires. And the EPA considers them a real hazard. Uh, it's It's an area of significant concern by the Environmental Protection Agency. And so one of the things I learned that I never knew is that if you have a giant pile of tires, that thing, I just say it really slowly so I didn't say pile of tires, <laughs> pile of tires, <laughs> there, there, it's, not, it's not unusual for something like that to go up in flames. So- Like it's uh, common? Yeah, um, it, like, it's amazing how common these things are. And really what's keeping them from being a, a really horrible, ubiquitous thing is just that 
there are so many regulations in place to keep the giant piles from forming to begin with. So just last summer, there was one um, up near Norfolk and it was, that place was actually not even supposed to have them at all, but they had a pile of what they estimated to be about 10,000 tires outside of this like auto um, place. Mm-hmm. And when you look at aerial photographs of that fire, there was this pile, 10,000 tires or so large and it, but it had a whole lot of clear space surrounding it. So the one thing it had going for it was that the the firefighters were able to to get access to it relatively easily, and there mm-hmm. wasn't a lot for it to spread to, spread to. But it still took um, a day for for that thing to to burn. And it, and the, if you see the photos, I think we have a picture in the blog post. There's just this horrific black um, plume, you know, coming out of that fire, and. Um, you know, there have been ones, there was um, a giant one in Colorado last summer, but in Nebraska, we actually had one in 2002 in Nebraska City that became this kind of um, case study for FEMA. They, they published a really long report about this Nebraska um, tire fire in 02 because they learned a lot about firefighting um, from, from this fire. And there had been a company called Entire that um, was supposed to be pulverizing. So they basically, they would pulverize these tires in a shredder and then the um, scraps would be taken up a conveyor belt outside and dumped into these old grain silos. And there were four old Mm -hmm. grain silos and they would go up into the grain silos for these sort of so-called recycling projects. And the theory is that there was just an overheated metal piece on the actual conveyor belt that ignited a piece of this crumb tire that then went into a silo and spread from silo to silo. And that fire, um, first of all, it took 11 days to be extinguished. And it's right on the banks of the Missouri. There was something like three or 400 million gallons of water that the EPA had to remove to keep the Missouri River from being contaminated. And on the very first day of the fire, the um so you know the people fighting these fires out there these are volunteer fire departments right these are like just average brave residents of these towns that that respond to calls and go through this training and it ended up involving all of these local volunteer fire departments that were taking shifts of like six hours each just around the clock they're hosing this stuff down trying to keep it from getting worse while they're trying to figure out what to do and on the first day they talked through, you know, various solutions to this and they decided to put some um, liquid nitrogen on the fire in the hopes of rapidly cooling it down, which I think works in some contexts. But in this grain silo, FEMA thinks that what happened is it basically caused this like frozen top layer to form on the silo while underneath it continued to burn and then it exploded. And the explosion injured 13 um, firefighters out there. So this is this is a really bad fire. And what finally not only was it dangerous to the people doing it, like then of course it's, that's an environmental disaster mm-hmm. for anywhere the wind blows. It is. It's an environmental disaster. And I thought it was kind of touching that the the FEMA report mentioned how when the explosion happened, there was this like traumatic moment where the town the firefighters who were not directly on the scene and then the first responders that were coming in to rescue these firefighters, they thought they were going to roll up onto complete carnage. They were expecting to see all of their neighbors dead 
in this in this explosion. And it was luck, you know, that, that broke there were broken bones and some serious injuries, but nobody died. <clears throat> but it made it mentioned the trauma, right, of um, of even a non-fatal explosion in this community. Mm-hmm. And what ultimately put that fire out was the EPA. It was for all of the bravery and commitment of these um, firefighters, they just quite understandably do not have the tools to deal with something like that. Yeah. And so the EPA came in, they hired um, a private company from, I think it was the Gulf of Mexico that puts out oil fires. They hired them to come into Nebraska city. And as I understood it, they get these, he- this heavy machinery to kind of like bust up the fire physically and stretch it out. And then they sprayed this foam all over it to put the fire out. And that's how they finally extinguished it. So mm-hmm. this aloe thing is a big deal. <laughs> um, and what I what I noticed when I calculated out of the FEMA report, um, how many tires were involved, there are more tires sitting in that heap in Elvo than there were in that Nebraska city fire. It's a bigger, it's a bigger pile. Elvo doesn't have any resources to handle anything right now, let alone a major environmental catastrophe. They do not even have a fire department now. And so that, I was like, how did this happen? This is not supposed to happen. Um, Nebraska passed a bunch of regulations to keep this kind of thing from happening again, right? And so you have to, um, uh, you have to apply for a permit to be what's called a tire hauler in Nebraska. And one thing I learned is there's actually not that many of these people. I looked at the currently licensed, currently licensed tire haulers in Nebraska, and a whole lot of them are actually not in Nebraska. They're companies out of state, like in Colorado, that come in and haul off tires from Western Nebraska or whatever into Colorado. There's only 14 um, businesses that are located in Nebraska that are licensed to, to, to do this with tires at all. And three of them are implicated in some way or involved with the story in Alvo. So one hmm. is the tire hauling company that started by a woman named Beth Rose who lives in Alvo. Um, one is this so-called recycling company or, or transportation company by her partner, Larry Langer. And then the third one is the, is the actual landfill for um, it, that's in David City that's able to accept tire scraps. Those are three of the 14 licensed tire haulers in the state. And, you know, so as I understand it, the business model for tire hauling is um, I get a truck and I drive around to all the places in Lincoln. Um, There's one right by my house that was on this list I saw, right? But like I drive around to places in Lincoln and I pick up all the tires that they took off of people's cars and I charge them something, a buck 52 bucks or so per tire to pick these tires up. And then I am supposed to take them out to a location where I shred them up and then take them um, normally without accumulating them at all, take them to the landfill, which then charges me a price per ton to take that scrap tire off my hands and bury it deep within the landfill. So the, besides expenses like trucking and employees, the money here is the amount of money you charge to pick up tires minus how much the landfill charges to take them from you. Mm-hmm. So right away, there's like a, there's a financial incentive to accumulate these things, right? Like the more you accumulate, that's more money in and less money you've had to pay out to take them to the, to the dump. 
So these, these folks out in Alvo, they have been doing this for uh, several years now. And the state makes them create a manifest. Like they have to mark down every, how many tires they picked up from every single place all year long, and then how much they dumped off at the dump. So the state wants a record of, of where the tires are coming and going. And if you start to accumulate tires on your property, you have to start paying money, like kind of like a security, a financial security to the state. Mm. So that if you like split town or whatever, the state has some kind of money available to them to clean this mess up. So initially they were doing what they were supposed to be doing. And then their tires on hand started to creep up a little bit. And then in 2019, the Beth Rose, the, the tire hauling permittee, submits this report to the state that suddenly shows 239,000 personal tire equivalents, which just means, you know, like semi-trucks or something have huge tires. And those count as like, you mm. know, more than one tire. But hundreds of thousands of tires now that have accumulated on this property in Alvo. And that is what perked up the state, the Nebraska Department of Environment and, and Energy. And they're like, whoa, 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 whoa what you know <laughs> and they had increased their amount of financial security that they had with the state but they could not cover that that number of tires and so eventually NDEE sent a um, an inspection team out there in the summer of 2020 and the inspection team reported back that yeah there's a metric shitload of tires out here <laughs> and also apparently a whole lot of fire code violations because if you're going to have tires on your property there are really strict rules about how these things have to be laid out right like small piles with wide like dirt drives between them which keeps the mm. fire from spreading and it also lets fire trucks come in there, there are all these I it sounds like these regulations have been really well thought out. They have. And, and they've learned a lot from fires in the past. But you're right. saying it's not happening there. It's not happening. It's You can seriously just go to Google, look at Alvo, and zoom in on the northeast part of town, and you'll see it for yourself. Um, it's 66,000 square feet of a giant tire heap. And the state ended up calculating, they have this whole like right around the time of the Nebraska city fire, they came up with this geometric formula for how to calculate tires in a trapezoid. I was like channeling hmm. my 10th grade geometry class reading it. And they calculated that there were, um, well, the equivalent, I should say up to well over 300,000 tires in this heap, maybe less, you know, there's a, there's a margin of error. And so they, um, they began this schedule of cleanup. And I, I was noticing as I was reading all this documentation, these moments were like um, the people, you know, with this tire horde, they have lots of reasons why they have the tires. You know, at first it was that their tire shredder had broken down and that's why they accumulated it. Then it was um, later when the inspectors came out to get the measurements for the calculation they said, oh, um, but you know, not all of that is tires. We have, we, we piled tires on top of heaps of dirt and machinery. Like, <laughs> no, you didn't. <laughs> like, 
Like we're supposed to think that it's just a giant heap of dirt coated in tires because that's yeah. what you would do is you would just have a pile of stuff that you then put tires on top of. So um, <laughs> the state, basically they are on a schedule of decreasing this pile that to my mind is pretty darn leisurely. It's, you know, they, the state became aware of this problem in early 2020. They have until September 1st, 2021 to get the pile down to 160,000 tires, which is still a huge number of tires that they're going to, that they're allowed um, to have out there, at least as the, as the directive is currently um, described. So that's, that's the situation is that there is a gigantic, ridiculous ocean of tires about 10 miles away from Lincoln that um, accumulated very rapidly and is going to be there for quite a while to come. And so who is supposed to intervene? Is the Alvo village, which has no fire department and all that, are they supposed to do something? Are they making this situation worse? Like, I don't, what is their role here? Yeah. So you know, the state is intervening. They're just doing it very slowly. Mm -hmm. And I don't really know what their end game is. Like I I tried to talk to NDEE and they were very Um, (laughs) tight-lipped. They were very tight-lipped about this, but just judging from the actual documentation, the people have been told that they have to get the heap down to 160,000, but I don't see anything in the directive saying that they have to rearrange it necessarily um, there's nothing that specifically says that they have to comply with fire code. It might be implied, but they don't, it's not saying, by the way, you're in massive fire code violation and you have to do this and that, right, with the, with the tires. Um, and at the end of it, they're still going to have 160,000 tires out there. Yeah. So that's a slow and kind of unsatisfying response from, um, from the state, and normally, I mean, if I started piling up 100,000 tires in my backyard, I would expect the city of Lincoln to come in and do something about it. So sure enough, Alvo has ordinances that are very clear. They, they hmm. specifically mention accumulating automotive crap as a, as a nuisance. So as it turns out, there are plenty of people who live in Alvo that are really pissed about this um, <laughs> tire situation. Mm-hmm. Um, they, for all, all the reasons we've talked about, including people that live near it and they, um, they worry about the, you know, the environmental risk and they worry about other things involved with the business. They've claimed that the guy leaves the business gates wide open for anybody to walk into, that he leaves semi-trucks running um, at all hours outside. Like they, they have a lot of complaints about this business. And um, the long and short of it is that this, the, the village of Alvo seems completely powerless to do jack shit about this because they are a failing municipal government. And mm-hmm. that's where the story took an interesting kind of turn. So um, is a vi- uh, Alvo is a village. It has 132 or so people in it. And villages by state law are governed by boards of trustees. So there's a five person board, not a mayor. Um, it's a board of trustees that governs Alvo. And some of the people on the board, as you might ex- you know, expect, they kind of mm-hmm. circulate around, you know, there's only so many people in town, only so many of them wanna be involved in right. government. So it's a lot of the same people coming back year after year. 
but they have had a series of just jaw dropping um, scandals in that village over the last few years, starting with a village clerk who was convicted of embezzling, um, I believe it was $130,000 out of village coffers. And this was just a few years ago. How many people did you say are in the village? 132-ish. So that's like $1,000 a person in the village. I mean, it seems like it was a huge portion of the village uh, assets. Yeah. She was convicted. Now, when you hear people in Alvo talk about it, they think she took a lot more, like mm. over $200,000. And the reason nobody knows is that there has never been a full audit of the finances of this town. Um, so the, the, this clerk took all this money and you have to wonder what was going on where somebody could do that unobserved <laughs> to begin right. with, right? Um, after she was convicted, she, she died not long after her conviction. But then in, I'm going to say it's 20, 2018, Alvo had a fire chief, um, Ben Glantz um, is his name. Well, it turns out that he and his wife were using the fire department account as their personal bank account. And they cool. have been charged recently. This, this criminal case is still open. But, um, but Ben Glantz was charged by the state for spending something like $18,000 of the Alvo Village budget on his mortgage and other personal expenses. This is just within a couple of years of the other lady. So around that time, there was this other whole brouhaha where there's all this infighting between the fire chief guy and then the guy that was running their rescue squad, their ambulance service. They tried, the, the rescue squad guy had been arguing for um, a full accounting of the finances in the village. Sure. But he himself now is in a legal dispute. So they they held what was adjudicated to be illegal meetings, removing him from the rescue squad. <laughs> and then um, he sued over that. And now there is a lawsuit where he he's basically, they're, they're claiming that he made off with a bunch of um, equipment belonging to the village. He contends that the bank account and the rescue squad equipment is rightfully his, or he should have rightful exclusive access to it. Mm-hmm. And the state auditor came back with a report basically saying, you all have kept non-existent or such disorganized records of this village that we can't even make heads or tails of half of this stuff. Like you're saying he took off with your computer. Where have you ever recorded inventory ever that you even own this computer? <laughs> like this is you know um it's really it's really astonishing so that that court case is still active it's going to go to trial in november and uh, meanwhile on their five person board one of the board members is larry the guy who owns the tire heap so oh, wow. larry larry king of the tire heap is on the board and he appears to have two allies Three out of the five Alvo board members are sort of like, I don't know, pro, pro tire heap. <laughs> <laughs> and 
the end of the, uh, we, uh, on, on the blog, we put up some clips and um, we can, we can listen to a few of them in the podcast, but shit is getting real in the Alvo village board meetings, guys. They are not <laughs> there to play the Alvo residents. There's going to be, there's going to be a blood feud in Alvo over this freaking tire heap. And so at the last one in May, they have their, their village board meets on the first Tuesday of the month. And at the last one in May, they do some boring Alvo, you know, village business to begin with. And then there's a resident of the town who, who stands up and he himself had been terribly injured in, a, in an explosive fire in Alvo about eight or nine years ago. And he wants to know when Larry's going to get rid of his tires. And Larry does not answer him. And the, they get into this argument with some other people joining in and Larry's mad because nobody has come to talk to him like a man. They brought it up at the village board meeting instead of talking to him like a man. And somebody's like, you're not a man. It's, it's you know, they're like all out. And um, the, the, you know, the people in attendance are just sitting there wondering how is this guy even on the board? They start claiming that he doesn't even live in Alvo. It's true, by the way, he owns a home, and I believe it's Nimaha, is the only property, the uh, only residential property in his name. And what the what the people at the meeting are saying is that you either don't live in town or you're living in a junkyard that's not zoned as a residence. And he starts saying that they're all liars and they lie. It's they, you know, big fight breaks out. Then after they decide to do nothing about the tires and the chair of the board, Robin LePage says that Larry keeps threatening or has threatened frivolous lawsuits when the village has made movements towards regulating him. And if they get one more lawsuit on their back, they are going to go bankrupt as a village. So she doesn't say this, but the clear implication is that they're letting Larry do whatever the hell he wants with the tires right now because they cannot afford to force him to do otherwise because of all of the financial malfeasance that has happened out there over the last several years. And he's on the board, and so he has a certain amount of power he shouldn't have. And so right after that, they he and Larry and his allies move to fire the town's attorney. So there's a there's an attorney that they're paying to show up at the board meetings and advise them. And Larry and his, his um, friends on the board want to get rid of the attorney because the attorney is expensive. <laughs> and <laughs> the attorney is very Nebraska nice. And he's explaining that. I think he used the phrase hokey pokey like three times. It's like, <laughs> Look, I don't want to do the hokey pokey with you guys. I just. (laughs) (laughs) He says that um, they they basically want him to just be on hand and they will pay him, you know, an hourly rate when and if they have questions for him. And he's like, I don't really want to do that because, and these, these are my words, not his, but, you know, translated from Nebraska nice into plain talk. You guys are such colossal fuck ups that there's no way I can answer off the cuff a la carte questions about whatever freaking unimaginable unimaginable bullshit you have gotten yourselves into that come that comes up. Like I have to actually be watching these stupid ass board meetings to have any idea what to advise you when a question comes up. This is, you know, his completely reasonable response. And 
Larry just thinks it's too expensive and they can get somebody else for cheaper. And there's a clerk on hand who's like, you're not going to find anybody else that's going to do anything for us. (laughs) (laughs) All the stuff that we're in. And, you know, and then somebody is like, why has your costs gone up, you know, to the attorney? Why have you started charging more for your services? And the attorney's like, well, sometimes you'll ask me a legal question. And when I give you the answer, there are people on the board who require me to write out a very long explanation for why my answer is the way that it is. For example, I've had to write out a long memo explaining that state law has supremacy over local ordinances. Like, so what we're hearing here is that the town attorney is having to tell board members that they do not get to trump state law. And he's having to charge this hourly rate. And so, you know, there are residents and attendants that are like, wait, you have people doubting your legal expertise and like we're paying for you to persuade. <laughs> we're, you know, these people. So anyway, they vote to get rid of the attorney and he says, good luck to you all and leaves the village board meeting. And then they move on to a matter of the fire department, which Larry and his friends, they want their now defunct fire department back. The one that went bankrupt, you know, from theft and all of this stuff. And in attendance are a couple of men that work on the Eagle Fire Department. And Eagle provides fire services to Alvo. Larry and apparently his friends, they don't like this. They really want Alvo to have their own fire department, even though they literally have no money. They don't have a fire department. They can't even pay their attorney. And so (laughs) the Eagle firemen are sitting there explaining in like extremely assertive terms. that you can't have your own fire department anymore, Alvo, because it's really expensive. And some of the rules have changed. And your old ambulance was from like 1990. And it doesn't, it's not even up to code. Like some of your equipment didn't even have enough like seat belts in it. And then the guy who was burned describes how when he was taken by ambulance to Lincoln, the Alvo ambulance could not go over something like 40 or 45 miles per hour. And this is what they're, and so the the firemen from Eagle are trying to explain to these people on the board that there is no way in hell that they could even pay the insurance premium on the equipment, much less buy the equipment, train the people and keep these things manned based on their financial problems. And they end up walking out in disgust. But at one point earlier in the conversation, Somebody asks the Eagle fire, fire guys what happens if the tires catch on fire. And he says, mm-hmm. there is no way that we will put that out. There is no way they will have to bring in someone from out of state to put that fire out. Yikes. And, and so, so that's where it is. And who would be financially responsible for that? Um, hmm. I don't know, but my guess is that it would be the big bad Biden EPA. But that's, what's ha- that's what happened in Nebraska City back when... Oh, you know, oh, yesteryear. The year was 2002. (laughs) And one third of the American population had not gone fully batshit crazy off of a cliff yet. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so, you know, it was a less partisan issue to have the Federal Environmental Protection Agency come in and deal with an environmental hazard. But no, I, I, I believe what would happen is that um, either the state of Nebraska, I don't, I don't know how that would work, or the EPA would once again have to come in and um, use out-of-state resources on someone else's dime to put out this fire that these um, incompetent, uh, you know, 
know, crooks and, and Elvo have, have produced. I mean, and I just, I just, I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, do you think these people really have insurance on their tire farm out there? Do you think I mean, that they, I, they pay taxes? Cause it would seem to me that they just take in money and then actually don't dispose of any of the tires ever. I um, don't know. I mean, I, it, I don't know why we would give them the benefit of the doubt about any of this. I know right. that they have financial security such as it is on 160 th- um, tires worth of their tires. So they have, um, oh, what would that be? About $200,000 the state uh, with the state. $200,000. holds on to? Yeah, I don't know exactly how it works financially if it's like held in yeah, yeah. some escrow type situation or what, but supposedly they have, um, they've had a way of formally assuring the state that they're good for $200,000. Hmm. That's not going to do jack. Mm-hmm. When you're, you know, when you're thinking about the hundreds of millions of gallons of contaminated water, I mean, what would happen is that that place would become a super fun site. Right. The, the village would become a super fun site. And you, your article was incredible. Like, I, I mean, um, no disrespect in this, but where the hell are the real journalists? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? They better pick this shit up. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just got to read aloud the last, I don't know, a couple sentences Amanda wrote. As we see in Mead and Alvo, small towns are extremely vulnerable to becoming sites of rapacious environmental abuse. The towns lack the money, power, and outside eyeballs to protect themselves from both external, like Mead, Nebraska, also mm-hmm. not far away, and internal, Alvo, opportunists. The resulting disasters imperil every living thing for miles around. We haven't talked a lot about meat on our pod, but hopefully you all have seen it in the news, but, you know, meat has a pesticide problem from the alt-N-ethanol plant using pesticide-laden corn byproduct, and it's even aerosolizing. And so it is, again, it's going, it spreads. This is how it works. (laughs) And it, and I just, the ending that you wrote was just so perfect that it reminds me so much of how we are all so connected even though, yep. especially rural Nebraska, I mean, in Lincoln, you know, big towns, we like to do it too. We're like, we're not you, ah. but um, especially little towns want to be all on their own. And, but we all are affecting each other. <laughs> That's right. I mean, in, in this case, it seems like a couple of, I don't know. I mean, I don't know these people. I don't know if they're just not bright, <laughs> if they're <laughs> just criminal. I, I mean, I don't know exactly what their motivation is. But they're, they're benefiting from, they're an opportunistic infection on that village. You know, mm-hmm. the village is, is weakened to the point of death's door by other thefts and, and problems. And these people are treating it like, a, you know, an unregulated libertarian wonderland, piling up all their tires there and turning this portion of our environment, the bird's environment, the deer's environment, I mean, like, you know, the, the natural environment of the state of Nebraska, turning it into um, a toilet. And, you know, I, like, I guess it just, to me, the problem here is not the story of two fools who produce this problem. There are always fools. There are always greedy people or stupid people that do terrible things. But as a society, we're supposed to have safeguards in place to limit the damage that people like that can do. And I mean, it's just the same story over and over again. You shouldn't have as an individual person the power to 
open fire with a 30 capacity magazine AR-15 and it right like <laughs> we we need to limit the the damage that individual people are capable of producing your capacity for causing damage and suffering should not so vastly outstrip you know just your, your rightful place in the natural order of things and that seems to be what's happening in these situations and so you know I don't I don't even really know what happens if Alvo dissolves I it was I'm not an expert on this by any means and when I was reading around on it I see lots of ways that people can choose to voluntarily dissolve a, a village I don't know what happens when you know they they can go into chapter nine bankruptcy with the federal government if they're not paying their bills but I don't see any kind of kill switch that, that I'm aware of in Nebraska law that allows an adult to take over what's happening out there unless there's a voluntary decision by the town to, to de um, to unincorporate and they would just go back to state or I'm sorry, County government. So, you know um, it's, it's a complex problem out there, but I suspect it's going to be one that we see happen, you know, again, in part because of economic forces that are causing attrition in small towns in states all over the country, right? People are tending to move to urban areas. So you're going to see towns getting smaller and the smaller they are, the more isolated they are, the more, the more vulnerable they are to like the one guy that wants to take a bunch of money out of the um, town's bank account. And um, the more that this, uh, cult of Trumpism has spread through these types of communities, the more you get people that, that think, fine, let's unincorporate them. Let's not have government watch over us. Let's not be accountable to our neighbors for the dangers that we're, we're putting our neighbors in. And um, so I think there's, you know, we, I know in a lot of other states, they're there's already begun a kind of wave of unincorporation in small towns where people just think, why should I pay local taxes on this or that? Why should I pay any money at all to have somebody enforce nuisance ordinances in this small town I live in? And they will voluntarily unincorporate to create their own little libertarian utopias. <laughs> so um, I, I just, I, I don't know where it'll go, but I think this is probably not the last we're going to see of this kind of problem in the state. Agreed. And it, I mean, unless those tires get under control quickly, it's not really a matter of if, but when. Yeah, that's right. And you know, what really struck me when I went out there to check out the tires and I, I put some pictures in our, the story on our, our blog, mm -hmm. but um, I, I was, astonished at how little they conveyed that you don't see the three-dimensional depth of this um this tire pile and there was just so much um spring nature around the edges of this place which hmm. was both like the disjunct was so off-putting to me these like blossoms and this beautiful flocks you know like springing up in the unpaved road and the birds are tweeting and then there's this wasteland you know that they're on the edge of but I also just thought the fire code clearly says <laughs> you, all of this vegetation turns into a fire liability in a month when it dries out and it takes one jackass in that town playing with a bottle rocket to set fire to that thing in june right oh you know how like slama yeah like, some important like, bill to fireworks expand fireworks. yep that's right i mean 
I'm so glad that our leaders in the state are really solving our state's problems because yeah, our big you know, when I when I think about life in Nebraska, it's not, you know, the racism or the corporate rapaciousness or the um, just complete jackasses that don't care about other people's, you know, health and safety. It's whether or not I can get a bigger bottle rocket for yeah. my 4th of July celebration. That's what I want my legislature spending time on. Yeah. Well, it's been great having you. My last question as resident librarian, have you been reading anything that you might recommend? I recommend My Wars Are Laid Away in Books, The Life of Emily Dickinson by Alfred Habiger. And this is a oh. definitive biography of Emily Dickinson. It is very readable and interesting. So you're reading My Wars Are Laid Away in Books and it's very readable. That's awesome. It is, yeah. It's a really insightful biography. I'll have to check that out. I am reading an interesting book. I am on Zoom. You can't see the cover because I took it off because it's annoying me. Hunt, Gather, Parent. Some other parental friends told me about it. And um, I really like it. I think so many times, um, you know, I'm raising a family away from all of my other family. And there's so many things that my family did that, you know, sure, that was great. And there's so many things that we all want to improve upon from the last generation. And then in so many ways, we're parenting in such a different world than our parents did. Anyway, it's really about, it's an NPR reporter who had a child and realized like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I'm raising a monster. <laughs> and she started traveling to all these like ancient cultures around the world and learning about how they raise happy, well-adjusted children. And it's very readable and lots of stories, but it's, it's really about, the the subtle ways that they help kids just you know be kind and helpful and generous like less nagging and not heaping praise on them every moment mm -hmm. uh i really like it i really like I it thought, i thought maybe you were supposed to you know the hunt gather parent sounded like that's how you get the children you're parenting you know you it's an instruction <laughs> hunt them down Gather them up. Gather them up <laughs> and then parent. I should say the subtitle is What Ancient Cultures Can Teach Us About the Lost Art of Raising Happy, Helpful Little Humans. Aww. And I was like, oh, I'm screwed because my oldest is not so little anymore. And <laughs> no, I'm not screwed. I'm doing some of the stuff and it's working. Mm -hmm. It's working. So we'll put those in our uh, bookshop. All right. Well, ladies, thank you again, Amanda. Thank you. Thank you. It was really interesting. I learned a lot tonight. Thanks. Yeah, I, it's, I'm glad we could talk more about environmental stuff. It's not something we often get to talk about. Mm -hmm. That's right. Have a great week. You too. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Seeing Red Nebraska, Politics from the Left. Seeing Red is a group blog edited by citizen volunteers and entirely devoted to Nebraska politics. You can support us on Patreon with a $5, $10, or $20 a month donation. Be sure to check us out at seeingrednebraska.com and on Facebook and Instagram. You can also follow us on Twitter at seeingredne or contact us via email at seeingredne at protonmail.com.